Welcome to War Horrid War. I am your co-host, Joel, and I'm joined by... Nick. <laughs> I think you'll probably have to get a little close to that, Mike. Um, so this is a history podcast, a very informal history podcast, where we discuss events that, I guess, interest us and are we find them absent from general internet media. Because I know personally when I looked up my first story that I'm going to talk about, I had a lot of trouble finding any kind of popular discussion of this event. And I think it's a super interesting and important event. And a lot of the events have been done pretty well by, by the Dan Carlins of the world and the other internet historians who are popping onto the scene. People are realizing that history is actually really interesting which is an encouraging development, but there are a few outlier events that have been missed, and hopefully we can bring them up on this podcast. Yeah, for sure. I think mine is maybe a similar situation where there's maybe a lot, and I will obviously talk about what our subjects are, but there's a lot online, but there's, you know, I'm going to be talking about the, the Kronstadt uprising. There's There's a lot of talk, but there's also some pretty big lacunas when you're trying to find you're trying to dig a bit deeper in it so yeah hopefully we can shed some more light on that and maybe even i mean it'll be impossible to cover it entirely so bring up some good questions for some further discussions yeah absolutely and so we also want anyone who's listening to this podcast to be able to email us and i'll put it i'll set up an email address and i'll put it in the episode description and if you here's one thing i really want you to do is if you come notice any errors that we that we uh, present please correct <laughs> us because i'm sure we will oh, yeah. history is very difficult to tell there are so many details and there are so many people that know particular subjects better than you and we are going to be bouncing around from country to country from historical period to historical period and we are not specialized experts in any particular <laughs> yes. area we just the wikipedia right? yeah exactly <laughs> we were a glorified wikipedia entry so if you if you hear any errors let us know those as well and i will uh collect them all and bring them up the next episode and uh, give you due credit as a amateur historian yourself so um, Nick's already mentioned his his subject for this episode. I have not yet. The subject that I'm going to be presenting is the Battle of Valmy. And you can be forgiven if you don't know what the Battle of Valmy is. I would say that it's sort of a battle, but really it's mostly a victory more than it is a battle. So it, it's a strange battle. There are very few casualties that happen at this battle. There's limited engagement between the opposing forces. One side is too green to pursue the enemy. The other side is disinterested in engagement to begin with. So it ends up being a very strange confrontation because of that. It's probably better to say that the Battle of Valmy was not just a battle, but more of a victory for the Republican ideals of liberté, égalité, and fraternité. And this victory completely transformed our world from one of the divine right of kings to the idea that all men are created equal. The German poet Goethe, was, who was present at the battle, said it ushered in a new epoch for humanity, and he was right. So, um, he was just chilling on the side. Yeah, he, he was actually pretty much just chilling on the side. It gives good descriptions, and I will get to those later. Um, 
him being basically wanting to go into battle, being, you know, an aristocratic ministerial type guy who has heard accounts of battle, but never actually experienced <laughs> himself. And so he's this kind of like typical, you know, uh, typical like 18th century aristocrat who's curious about the world and wants to experience yeah. these sorts of things that the common man talks about, right? So why would we consider this to be monumental in world history, this Battle of Valmy? Well, first of all, the battle was the first victory by a people's army since ancient times. Most battles of this era were led by inbred noblemen who commanded armies of degenerates with no better career prospects. Uh, mostly men that they were able to drag out of prisons or taverns and then beat mercilessly until they could walk in a straight line against cannon fire. Secondly, the victory put foreign invaders on notice that France was not going to go back to the divine right of kings or feudalism without a fight to the death. Republican values were not a passing trend. They were here to stay. Third, the victory gave confidence to the revolutionaries to declare the founding of the French Republic. And not long thereafter, the founding of the new French Empire that would conquer and spread republicanism throughout Europe. But uh, let's rewind a bit to lead up to the Battle of Valmy. I just wanted to jump in and say it's funny how it's guys that could drag out of prison because up until that point, or I mean, <laughs> it was usually worse to be in the army than be in prison. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you sit here in prison, you're just like contained, you have a meal every day, breaking rocks. Yeah, you're saved from the grape shot. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, the prisons were would have been no joke oh, in the yeah, 18th yeah, no, century no. too eh? you probably would have struggled to have gotten that loaf of bread if you were lucky so but I mean the these armies these battles they were miserable it was more miserable I think just the lifestyle than the actual battles too just because your officers were such dickheads yeah uh, that would have been the worst of it, I think. Cause oh, yeah, there was no... Nobody was being raised on, like, Hollywood war propaganda. <laughs> no. <laughs> yeah. You know, is respected by his troops. Like, no, there's just no respect whatsoever. <laughs> yeah, the officers were terrible, and your entire reason for being there was to basically sub support noble claims. Like, this is... It's hard to imagine... Uh, as contemporary people who kind of believe in the Westphalian system of nation states, but uh, pre previous to the the Republican Revolution in France, most common people were under nobility, under some sort of religious hierarchy. So there, you weren't fighting for your country; you were fighting for individuals, and these individuals had zero interests in common with you. So the lead up to the Battle of Valmy, how did we get here in the first place? The uh, French Revolution is an ongoing affair spanning four years at this point. The revolution was sparked, like most revolutions, by high bread prices for the peasants and a chafing merchant middle class that was bitter about political control by the establishment. In this case, the establishment was the Catholic Church and the nobility. Chaos reigns throughout the country, while multiple groups vie for power. Now let's fast forward a bit to the spring of 1792. The king has reluctantly agreed to be a constitutional monarch. He now has to obey the elected assembly. The king tried to flee the country a year earlier, demonstrating he was a flight risk who sought the protection of foreign monarchs and support of exiled French nobles living in the near abroad. The foreign powers looked on with suspicion, 
they don't want to take the risk of intervening just yet, despite their strong support for restoring the divine right of kings in France. Why? Because France had often been the most powerful land power in Europe, and now it was busy tearing itself apart. As Napoleon would later famously say, never interrupt your enemy when he's making a mistake. So what finally sparks the foreign powers to act against France? Well, the new revolutionary government wants to annex the Germanic border areas and also kick some ass against the French nobles who had fled to the Netherlands. These nobles spend their free time trying to get other countries to invade France and thus return their royal estates and authority. So the revolutionaries have a real incentive to stamp these traitors out once and for all. The Revolutionary Assembly mobilizes against Austria to deal with both of these problems at once. But the Revolutionary Army is in total disarray. Before the Re French Revolution, the officer class was made up of nobles, uh, mainly of nobles anyway, because promotions were uh, based on noble ancestry rather than merit. If you were a second son and not likely to inherit your family estate, your best prospect was to join the military as an officer and try to build your career that way. The division between officer and soldier in the royal army was a true class divide, and many royalist officers defected to the royalist community abroad rather than serve in an army under revolutionary rule. I was going to say, and it leaves some room for guys like Napoleon to eventually come up too. But exactly, and this is something yeah, that we'll see. This is something that we'll see in the battle: is that the true champions of the professional French military who choose to remain with the Republicans tend to be in the artillery because it's seen as sort of a lesser, a lesser uh, division within the army. So you get people like Napoleon who are. Nobles, sort of, like Napoleon sort of comes from a, no a noble family, but he's such a low-end noble that... And he's barely French. He's, he's barely French. French. His country's just recently been annexed into the country. Um, but yeah, so I will get to that uh, later. Um, so the French campaign against the Austrian Netherlands in the spring of 1792 is a total miserable failure. The troops even murder one of their own generals in retreat. Surely this motley band of rebels would always be crushed by the professional armies led by the true gentlemen of Europe. And so these gentlemen now see their chance to crush the revolution once and for all by simply marching on Paris with a true aristocratic army in tow. The Austrians had formed an alliance with the Prussians, the Hessians, and the exiled French nobles to invade revolutionary France a year earlier. In August of 1791, the Prussian king and the Austrian emperor formally declare an alliance to restore the Bourbon dynasty to the throne of France. The Duke of Brunswick, who is also known as the Black Duke, leads the invasion campaign for the King of Prussia. By the winter of 1792, the invasion force camps near the border, but it's the French who preemptively declare war in the spring. The Black Duke invades eastern France, but he, hasn't, uh, but he hadn't wanted the invasion to go this way. He had hoped to build up his forces into 1793 in order to deliver a decisive blow, but the King of Prussia forced him to act. This is interesting because you see that they start planning in like mid-1791, and ideally the commander wants to invade sometime in like early 1793 you have to imagine the forces at work here like i cannot even imagine the skill it would take to organize tens of thousands of men yeah. into a small area and feed them all 
and make sure that all the horses can survive and make sure that all your supplies can be brought hundreds of kilometers in the right direction. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. That everyone that these French noblemen who are just kind of lounging in the Netherlands show up, that all your allies show up, that you have appropriate weapons, that no one else invades you somewhere else in the meantime, and you have to go respond to that. So it's a massive undertaking. And the Black Duke is basically saying to the, the, the Kaiser, he's saying, we got to wait. We can't, we can't go yet. We got to make sure that we're ready. We're fully ready. And, but no, he wants to act. He's, he, he's tired of this, this revolution that's going on. So while the Duke preferred a cautious approach, the Kaiser wanted to rush to Paris to free the king, fearing that Louis might be next on the chopping block of the vengeful, bloodthirsty rebels, which would definitely be <laughs> in their character. They've been uh, killing people for quite some time at this point. By mid-August, the Black Duke has seized French forts along the border, including the important fort town of Longwy, on August um, 23rd. He then starts marching on the strategically important fort town of Verdun, which is the last major fort before Paris. The border fort at Sedan, meanwhile, hosted the leaderless army of the north. The French army is paralyzed. Resistance to the invasion is minimal. The French command is in a period of flux at exactly the wrong time. It seems as though the Prussians merely have to leisurely march from fort to fort until the entire country is under their control. But now, the invasion starts to slow. The Prussians are victims of their own success and the collapsing French defenses. The Black Duke needs to wait for his rearguard Austrian troops to catch up as they slog through heavy summer rains. The Black Duke is stopped by mid-August at Verdun, where his troops are forced to mill around and get dysentery from the lack of clean water. The Duke makes an official declaration to the revolutionaries. He says the French king must be restored to his throne, and anyone who resists will be put to death. He also threatened to level Paris if any ill should come to the king. The Duke mentioning the French king in a threatening declaration just solidifies in the minds of the French people that the king was on the side of foreign mo monarchs and not your average Parisian. This declaration was a major fuck up by the coalition because it basically forced thousands of French people to choose between becoming feudal slaves again or fighting to the death. And once the revolutionaries started down the path of resistance, they knew they had to fight like devils because they'd be shown no mercy if they ever surrendered to the coalition. Classic military, military doctrine is to give your enemy a way to surrender or retreat, even if you're just going to kill him anyway. That way you can divide his forces, rout him, and stab him in the back during the retreat. But this declaration did the opposite. It unified the people. So a little bit of uh, going back a little bit to the fall of Verdun. It's kind of an interesting story. There's some interesting characters in it. Uh, the French uh, Colonel Beaurepaire... Uh, charged with defending Verdun, is incensed by the municipal government's desire to surrender under these Prussian threats. He gives a speech decrying their cowardice and shameful royalist sympathies. Rather than surrendering, Beaurepaire blows his brains out. Uh, Lieutenant Colonel Marceau takes over Verdun to accept the surrender to the Prussians on September 2nd. Marceau is an interesting character. During the spring campaign, his battalion went to join the Army of the Ardennes, which had just uh, been abandoned by its general. 
Many of the officers wanted to abandon the army and join their general in retreat when Marceau gave a rousing patriotic speech and convinces them to join him on his march to the front. He tells them, put your country before the generals. Our place is at the front, and yet you turn your back to the enemy. Marceau, like Beaurepaire, had also wanted to defend Verdun to the death, but realizing he didn't have the government's support, he accepted the surrender after Beaurepaire committed suicide. Marceau then leaves Verdun to join the remaining resistance forces. He has nothing, no horse, no money, no weapons. When he reaches fellow revolutionaries, they ask him what he needs. He responds, another saber to avenge our defeat, and he is readily supplied with one. Love these little side stories. These little characters, these people who rise to the occasion in these difficult times. Um, Paris is really contributing to the war effort as the capital and principal uh, city of France. In Paris, the people of the Grand City take revenge for the fall of Verdun by emptying the prisons of suspected royalist sympathizers and massacring them. Over a thousand are summarily executed by ad hoc courts. Lynchings, beheadings, heads on pikes. Some real medieval shit. The Girondins, the center-right Republican political faction that dominated the early years of the revolution, condemned these mass executions. And with prescient foresight, because a year later, the Girondins would be the victims of Robespierre's left-wing Montagnard faction. 22 Girondin heads would fall, would roll rather, in the span of a half hour, and 17,000 other French citizens would be executed during the reign of terror. But that is a story for another time. The revolutionaries consider the Black Duke's declaration as final proof of a conspiracy between foreigners and the king. The royal family sought sanctuary within the assembly, but were quickly arrested on suspicion of treason. The monarchy is abolished by the assembly on September 18th in reprisal against their apparent treachery. France is officially declared a republic. Over a thousand years of monarchy are abolished in an instant. Provisional government takes over and calls a popularly elected convention to decide on a new regime to replace the constitutional monarchy. So, at the same time as the Republic's birth, it is in real peril of total annihilation. Battle-hardened Prussians and Austrians march on Paris. At this crucial hour of upheaval, invasion, and ultra-violence, the country needs a unifying and inspiring moment. Since the enemy easily conquered the fort at Verdun, the French think Paris will inevitably fall, considering the road is now wide open. The last remaining physical barrier before the flat plains of Champagne is the hilly Argonne Forest. With the fall of the only strategic town between the Prussians and Paris, some ministers in the revolutionary government argue the city should be evacuated. But the revolutionary uh, Georges Danton gives an impassioned speech to the assembly to steady their nerves. He says that the ministers of free people should tell the people that the fatherland will be saved. Everything is moving, everything is shaking, everything is burning with combat. The bells that we will ring are not an alarm, but rather a rallying cry against the enemies of the fatherland. To beat them, we must be daring, still more daring, and always daring. And only then will France be saved. So who's going to take on this daring mission to save the fatherland? Well, it falls to General uh, Charles-François Dumouriez. Despite Dumouriez being disliked by many factions in the assembly for his ego, 
he was selected to save the revolution because he was dedicated to national liberation in France and elsewhere, particularly in Belgium. It's kind of interesting, national liberation. It's a very new concept in this um, in this world that they're creating these revolutions. As well too. Yeah, <laughs> in a country that is uh, questionably a country, I guess <laughs> one could say. A country of many other countries, of many nations, like our own. Um, his personal letters, as Dumouriez, his personal letters were full of anti-royalist and anti-aristocratic sentiments, and his membership in the Jacobin Club showed he was a committed revolutionary. He also wrote to his subordinate, Gen- General Kellerman, that General Lafayette committed treason by abandoning the border to go protect the royal family in Paris. Dumouriez thought the continued aristocratic domination in the army could be detrimental to the defenses of France if this sort of wavering continued. Meanwhile, some revolutionaries also reasoned that his desire for glory would fuel his heroism in the face of overwhelming odds. The armies of the retreating generals Rochambeau, Lafayette, and Luckner are therefore handed over to Dumouriez and Kellerman to save the revolution. So we have this sort of like symbolic and real passing of the torch from these older style um, generals to this new class of generals. This is where they really kind of come into their own. I think you see this a lot in these crazy moments in world history. Like, like just you think about the purges of the Red Army and just all the changes that took place at the top and how that influenced yeah. how and the course of the war went. And they're also, like, surprisingly young, too, these generals. Like, you think... <laughs> You imagine a general in their their 60s or something, they're sometimes pushing their late 20s. Yeah. (laughs) I know there's a, I know, I'll I'll get into it, but the Kronstadt general who leads the counteroffensive is like 26, and he's like a seasoned, already a seasoned (laughs) veteran. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, some of these officers are in their teens. It's amazing. It's great. But I mean, at the same time, you're expected by the time you're 17 to be a dad. Yeah, (laughs) true. (laughs) Very different standards. Yeah, no, totally modern concept, adolescence. Um, so, Dumoulier, he understands the value of citizen soldiers, which is another interesting concept that we've been discussing. He remarked that these volunteers were more accepting of fatigue and the rough life of soldiering than traditional soldiers, thanks to their revolutionary zeal. From Paris, 2,000 men left each day for the front. 20,000 men moved out of the city before the revolutionary government stopped more volunteers to ensure enough workers remained to build weapons for the fight, especially artisans like locksmiths who could build muskets. Why did so many citizens volunteer for the front? It's because they wanted to uphold the declarations of the rights of man and the abolishment of the three estates. What was the three estates system? It was the hierarchy of power. You had the king on top, from which all light shone throughout the kingdom, Under the king, you had, in order of importance, the clergy as the first estate, the nobility as the second, and the bourgeoisie and the peasants as the third estate. The third estate, facing the biggest tax burden and suffering under the hyperinflation and famine caused by high government debts, naturally wanted more power so they could tax the rich and balance out this burden. The entire nation mobilizes. Poor women from the countryside offer their wedding rings and crucifix necklaces to buy weapons. Women volunteer for the National Guard to replace any men who need to be sent to the front. 
These popular efforts ensure that the Revolutionary Army is equipped to fight the invaders. This is another thing that you definitely see pretty frequently in a lot of the up national uprisings that occur in the 20th century. The mobilization of women and the changing of their from their traditional gender roles, especially you see that in the Soviet Union a lot with a lot of female combatants. It's very interesting. So it really it really started here with the Battle of Valmy, where you have women doing these traditional male roles. The churches, long the dominion of the stuffy elitist clergy, now opened up to the people, like in the early days of the church. Church bells ring to bring in the people. Thousands of women answer the call. They head towards the workshops around the church to prepare the clothing, equipment, and shelter for their sons and husbands going off to fight for freedom in the fall and winter cold of northeastern France. Citizens even dig up coffins to melt the lead and copper into weapons. In this way, the ancestors of France provided their descendants with the means to defend their country. So Paris is just completely transforming. It truly is revolutionary. You think of it being this capital of this stuffy old uh, aristocratic regime, and now it's completely being mobilized for this one confrontation with essentially the entire world coming down on them. Yeah. Well, when you're, I mean, the coalition, and when you're facing Prussia alone is intimidating. <laughs> you're facing a coalition that is, I mean, eventually going to include basically every other absolutist regime on the continent. That's <laughs> <laughs> true. Um, so how are they going to pull this off is the question now. So the French army has a daring plan. They're going to leave the road to Paris completely open, but they're going to cut off the Prussian and Austrian supply lines. Dumouriez moves to cut off the coalition lines from the north. His subordinate, General Kellerman, will link up, to him, link up with him from the south. Dumoulier's diary stresses the quality of patriotic citizens, which would foreshadow Napoleon's use of the Grande Armée. But they can't conduct complicated maneuvers because they are inexperienced and untrained. One aspect Dumoulier and the other generals didn't seem to fully appreciate was the demoralizing effect the high spirits of the general population created in the enemy. The great rising of soldiers in every corner of France showed the Prussians they could not win an easy victory like they had hoped. Even the new class of revolutionary officer was inspiring. Zemmoulier offers for example this, his lieutenant general who commanded the right wing of the army of the center. Alexis uh, Le Veneur uh, was forced to retreat with General Lafayette, but he quickly rejoined the army as a simple soldier, ignoring his previous rank and taking up the saber of a lowly hussar. Rank and privilege came second to the revolutionary cause. Now a little bit on General Kellerman, his subordinate. Kellerman was already a war hero. Kellerman, as you might be able to guess, is a Germanic family name. His family were ethnic Saxons from the contested eastern Alsace region of France. He was born in Strasbourg and had a strong German accent. Kellerman came from a small-time aristocratic family, kind of like we were talking about with Napoleon. His father was also a decorated war hero in his day. Kellerman wants to become a somebody one day, so he signs up at the age of 17, once again, going back to these teens in the army, to the Royal uh, Regiment de Loendal, an ethnic German regiment in the French Royal Army. And see, like, this is again, like, you, ha you could have ethnic, 
you know, regiments within your army because ethnicity was secondary to serving a particular royal house. He then served the Bavarians before joining the Alsatian Volunteers as a lieutenant during the Seven Years' War. In 1759, he distinguished himself as a dragoon at the Battle of Bergen. Now, dragoons had the dangerous job of charging headlong into the enemy on horseback. He earns the Cross of St. Louis for a daring cavalry charge against the Prussian forces. So, by the time we get to the Battle of Valmy, Kellerman is very experienced in fighting Prussians. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> he's shown that he's daring. He's shown that he understands the enemy. Um, but the Prussians have the spiked helmet at this point. I'm trying to think. I don't know. It's a good question. Yeah. I, I feel like that was something. I, I'm totally pulling this out of nowhere, but I feel like something that on the eve of World War I, or they might have like reincorporated. Yeah. Like a. Reviving uh, yeah. Prussian traditions, but. I'm trying to like think. I don't think the pressure. I'm just imagining this guy with like his horse with like a bunch of like yeah. spiked helmets on the side. I mean, they were so ornate. Yeah. Their uniforms, the uniforms of these officers were, they would just put all sorts of superfluous yeah. decorations on them as a means of showing a peacocking, as it were, right? Well, so there is an interesting argument for that that um, because the musket smoke was smoke heavy. Well, I mean. Yeah, there is an element of peacocking, but the bright colors in general mm. to see through heavy musket smoke. You know, if you think about it, if you're trying to, if you're not in a trench, you're in a line. You want your soldiers to see you to be aware of what you're gesticulating at. Mm-hmm. If you're wearing bright red, it's better than if you're wearing the camo. Yeah, or your your gray gray trousers and shirt. Yeah. So it's amazing um, to think about just how much how much smoke would fill up a battlefield oh, with, yeah. with thousands yeah. of black powder. Yeah. Because. Um, People, people, typically when they think of firearms, they think of modern firearms, which is it uses something called smokeless powder, which is you know self-explanatory. But these weapons that they're using are traditional black powder, so it creates a huge amount of fouling. It's very inefficient when it burns, so it's basically creating these big black plumes of smoke. And if you have thousands of these men in one area doing the same thing, and let's say there's no there's no breeze and it's just kind of sitting there, then yeah, I mean it basically gets to the point where you can't see more than a few feet in front of you. Or if you happen to be down breeze of the other group, then you get hit with it. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Uh, So he's he's earned this cross for for bravery at this point, fighting through the the Seven Years' War. He moves up to the rank. Uh, he moves up from um, the ranks to captain, and he leads important missions for the French monarchy in Eastern Europe. So he's really bouncing. He's really bouncing around the continent, uh, and finally ends up as a brigade commander, despite being from a low-level aristocratic family. But this is just—it's not enough for him. He's he's a very ambitious individual. So in in 1789, when the revolution offers him an opportunity to escape his low birth and rise even higher in the ranks. He, he jumps at it. He uh, commands the forces of the Upper Rhine and becomes a lieutenant general. And then as a, royal, a loyal revolutionary, he becomes commander-in-chief of the Army of the Center, uh, from which he serves his superior, Dumoulier, who's command, in all, command of all the forces at the Battle of Valmy. So now a little bit on the state of the French army at this point. We've discussed it a little bit, but... There are different components to it. So what army was at their disposal when they were going to conduct this maneuver? Well, 
First of all, the French army was divided on the Eastern Front into the North, the Center, and the South. Early in the year, Rush General Rochambeau, a veteran of the American Revolutionary War, a lot of these guys were, uh, led the Army of the North to the disastrous failure during the invasion of the Austrian Netherlands, which I had previously mentioned. So he resigns from his post, so now the Northern Army has no commander. Another veteran of the American War, General Lafayette, was concerned with the anti-royalist attitudes of the revolutionary government. So when, he attempts to, when his attempts to restore the monarchy are rebuffed, he flees to the Austrians in mid-August. So now that part of the army is leaderless. So Dumoulin takes over the Army of the North. Kellerman takes over the Army of the Center. The Army of the South doesn't really factor in. It's more along basically where Switzerland is. So um, The duo, basically, they inherit the foot soldiers of the Royal Ar Royalist Army. And more importantly, as I alluded to earlier, the artillerists of the Royal Army. A lot of the Royalist officers of the artillery remained with the Revolutionary Army since they were more career-oriented than the cavalry, which had been composed of the highest ranks of the French nobility since cavalry was associated with the medieval notions of chivalry. So all those guys who ran away, they were mostly cavalrymen. So what's the plan now? Setting the battlefield. Uh, the region in general is just filled with soldiers. On the invader side, we have about 100,000 troops, which is, includes about 40,000 Prussians, 30,000 Austrians, 5,000 Hessians, and 15,000 Royalists. The Royalists form an aristocratic cavalry corps with high morale and extensive military experience, but lacking in unit cohesion, which makes their performance on the field unreliable. They're very typical nobles. They think that they're all unique little snowflakes, and they don't have to follow orders from anyone. The original snowflakes. <laughs> the original snowflakes. Uh, the, the Prussians were exceptionally disciplined soldiers, mostly from the beatings, with experienced officers. And the Austrians were recently battle-hardened from fighting the Turks in the east. So this is a no-nonsense kind of army that we're dealing with here. Um, opposing the invaders is a similarly sized force of 90,000 free Frenchmen many of whom are ex-royalist soldiers and many others who are civilian volunteers. And those are large. I mean, 90,000 is huge. For, <laughs> for this period? Huge. It's a lot of people. <laughs> yeah, and when you consider that this is a state that only barely exists, <laughs> that is in constant turmoil, that is being invaded on multiple fronts. It's bankrupt. <laughs> that is bankrupt, that is facing two of the... The, basically the two largest forces in Europe other than itself um, it is it's an amazing amount that they managed to cobble together for this confrontation so th as mentioned before the last physical barrier between Verdun and Paris is the Argonne Forest if you look at a map of eastern France you kind of see like there are certain parts that are heavily forested and hilly and then there are flatlands that are surround it so if you can get through those forests and those hills you're, you're in the clear. Like, this happens a lot throughout history in this time period, like, or not in this time period, but throughout history. Like, we think of, like, the Battle of Bastogne, you know, where they're, like, trapped in the forests yeah. and in the hills. And yeah. this is, like, this gives the Nazis the advantage to do their suicidal counterattack in the Battle of the Bulge, which fails, which falls apart. But it actually, despite Nazi Germany barely having an army left, they managed to grind the invasion to a standstill because they take advantage of the terrain. So this is the same thing that the French hope to pull off. 
So the, the Prussians, they head towards the Argonne Forest with 80,000 of their troops. Um, the French in the south, with Kellerman, they scramble north to intercept them. Dumoulier, he had planned to invade Belgium before, this, before the Prussians invaded and changed his mind. So he has to abandon his northern invasion plans, and he has to drive his troops south into the Argonne Forest. Uh, he basically wants to block the invaders on the western side. So he wants to stop them from exiting the forest, basically, because the forest is full of these tight little forest paths that the Prussians would have to funnel their troops through in these little, like, thin columns so they wouldn't be able to fight, essentially. But if they could emerge onto the fields of Champagne, then it would be open, open for them to basically uh, deploy their columns. So Dumoulier said that that the Argonne Forest would be like it would be like the hot gates of France's very own Thermopylae, is what he said. And he, but he said also that we will be happier than Leonidas, implying that unlike the Spartans who were all massacred by the Persians, his force would actually stop the invaders in their tracks. I'm just imagining the remake of 300 <laughs> the French Troisant. Yeah. <laughs> so uh the problem is this does not work out as well as they had hoped the best laid plans basically fall apart the french do manage to occupy there's basically five forest passages through the argonne and they they managed to occupy them from august 31st to september 4th uh dumoulier's english-born general arthur dillon See so again, it's like a multi-ethnic army. He blocked the two southern passes um, of the forest. Um, Dumoulier takes his own force to occupy the central passes, and a small force takes the northernmost pass. The Black Duke encounters Dillon's troops on September 5th, um, and, and he has to basically reassess how he's going to do this, how he's going to be able to march to Paris with this barrier in the way. So he sends one of his generals uh, to probe this middle section where Dumoulier is uh, while he goes for the center, basically. Uh, so while these two Prussians are, are, are probing the, the central area, Dumoulier's main forces and Dillon's forces in the south, the Aust they have an Austrian general with them called uh, Clairefayette. And by chance, he arrives at the northernmost pass and he finds that there are very minimal forces there so he manages to break through and he seizes the pass and this is like a stroke of luck for the invaders they're, com they're completely bypassed at this point they're outflanked to the north uh, so this defense is now completely useless um, Dumoulier's position is, is untenable and he has to face a large force on his, uh, his left flank now. So he heads south to join Dylan. Now he has to reassess his own situation. And um, basically the new plan is that they're gonna try to threaten the rear of any potential Western movements made by the Prussians as they move through the forest, move like 80,000 men through small forest paths. So, you know, everything is in flux at this point. Um, Dumoulier decides to reposition to the other side of the forest. And this way, 
he's basically done a switch of what he was doing before. Before he was on one side and he was trying to stop the invaders from moving on Paris. Now he's going to go on the other side and stop them from getting any of their supplies. So it's 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 a it's a bit of a gamble here. They're making stuff up on the fly, which is what good generals do is they're able to adapt. And did you say that that was the the original strategy to cut the supply lines? Did that change or was that the overarching strategy? So initially, yeah, so initially it was to stop them all together, to yeah. just discourage them. And now it's evolved into cutting off their supply lines. Yeah. So, yeah, that's the new strategy. Which is a good strategy if you're if you have let them in, then you may as well bar their way out <laughs> and besiege them with mm-hmm. entry on your own lands. Much better than fighting on flat plains yeah. where they have an advantage as the more experienced force and can do complicated maneuvers. Yeah. Uh, but the problem now is that Paris is completely undefended, so you have to consider losing your capital. Um, <laughs> if the Prussians continue to go west, their capital will be under siege, and they've already made the threat that they're willing to burn it to the ground, essentially. So, um, you know, you have to imagine how terrifying this is. You have a lot of volunteers, and it's not like these two forces... There's this thing called the fog of war, where you, people who are actually engaging in the conflict aren't necessarily sure of where everyone is at any one time. There's not perfect information. So you imagine that a lot of these people have never been in the army before. They're they're former farmers, and they have no experience, and they have no training, and they're walking through this forested area, and sometimes they'll encounter Prussian hussars, which are the Prussian cavalry, basically. That's got to be particularly terrifying for these people. Very demoralizing, I would think. Shit gets very real very quick <laughs> yeah. when you're faced with depression. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, so Kellerman leaves Metz to meet up with de Mouille. The vanguard of the invasion force reply by heading back south to engage the French and reopen the supply lines to Prussia. The French are now surrounded by the enemy and can be mat- attacked on multiple sides. Uh, as uh, Brunswick uh, was forced to pause for supplies, de Moulier had time to establish a new position and headquarters. Uh, he is protected at this point now by two different rivers and also by a marshland. So even though he's technically surrounded by the enemy, he couldn't be easily attacked. So he's able to wait for Kellerman to come up with 16,000 troops. And the armies do end up linking up on September 18th. So this has been going on for many weeks now, this back and forth, outmaneuvering of one army with another. Um, Dumoulier asked Kellerman to send a vanguard to meet up with the Army of the Ardennes. And their arrival inspires the men with confidence the Army of the Center would be arriving soon to fight shoulder to shoulder with their smaller force. So all the forces are getting together now. The French are preparing for a fight. Um, Keller, Kellerman advances west past the heights guarded by General uh, Dampierre, uh, who had taken the high ground in the area to defend de Moulier's forces from attack. Um, Kellerman crosses all these barriers that are protecting de Moulier's, um, general position as headquarters, and uh, the issue now is that the area is less defensible, and he's getting pretty far from de Moulier as a reserve force, so he's basically making it so that he's on his own facing the Prussians. Uh, Kellerman is alerted to the Prussian presence in the area by cavalry scouts, the aforementioned uh, hussars running around. 
um, the Prussian vanguard uh, start probing his left flank. So they're they're kind of they're kind of um, trying to figure each other out what the, what they're doing, what their movements are. Again, like the fog of war, lack of perfect information. Um, so Dumoulin at this point is way too far away to back him up. Um, and everyone, even though they had hoped the Prussians would return to confront them, they're still surprised with how quickly the Prussians come back to open up their supply lines. And so Kellerman, at this point, he's got to make a stand. He can't do anything to get reinforcements from the Northern Army. So um, Kellerman's really poorly placed when he arrives. He has a river blocking his retreat. He has a pond separating from Dumoulier on the right. He has the heights of Valmy presenting potential Prussian high ground on his left. He had hoped to reposition his army, but the rapid arrival of the Prussians forced a change of plans. Since Kellerman had a lot of inexperienced citizen soldiers, he was best off finding a strong defensive position. Inexperienced troops tend to break into chaos if they're attacked while on the move. Instead of attacking the advancing Prussians, he cuts off their forces by occupying the Valmy Plateau. The French move a small artillery force to the heights further west called La Lune, but they quickly lose it to the Prussian advance, and this is where the Prussians end up setting up their own headquarters. So we, we got this situation now where there's two high grounds, and they're occupied by the opposing forces, and this is the showdown. The vanguard manages to delay the Prussians just enough that Kellerman can take the heights next to Valmy, around the now famous Valmy windmill, with 18 artillery pieces stationed and ready to turn the Prussians into Prussian versed, should they choose to attack. Dumoulier's Brigadier General Stengel takes the heights to the north at Mount Ivron. General Valence blocks the road to Kellerman's left. So they're kind of like boxing in the Prussians at this point. They're forcing them to choose a place to attack. <clears throat> With two experienced generals on either flank, Kellerman could stand his ground and avoid being encircled by the Prussians. The whole path back east is now blocked. The veterans of the former Royal Army are placed in the front line, and the inexperienced revolutionary militia are placed in reserve near the windmill. Kellerman's vanguard is placed on the plains below the heights to engage the Prussians, while the rest of the force defended the heights with artillery in tow. The French adhered to the ancient military principle of forcing the enemy to fight on your chosen ground. The French generals took strategic initiative to cut off the supply lines to force their own tactical advantage on the high ground with stationary inexperienced volunteers. The overly cocky Prussians, particularly the Kaiser who ignored the advice of the Black Duke, hadn't played, paid close enough uh, attention to their overstretched uh, logistics. The Prussians were now under pressure from the French strategic positioning. The French ensured they would not have to move their inexperienced troops and could rely on their superior artillery. Kellerman's cavalry is placed on the hill instead of on the flatlands below, limiting their maneuverability but also keeping them in reserve to strike if necessary. Now, they might be well placed, but Kellerman really doesn't have a good idea of what he's going to be facing. The Prussians arrive with a large army. Will he be facing a full-on battle or just a show of force? The bulk of the opposing sides occupy these opposing hills. The Duke to the west, Kellerman to the east. The Prussians establish themselves in a dry area, uh, referred to, as mentioned, as basically the surface of the moon, or also the famine lands. These are very Jeez, <laughs> interesting <sorry>. names. <laughs> um, 
on the French side, you have the hussars in the cavalry. So the French have their own hussars that have remained. They still have some, even though many defected to the royalists. They have the men of the line in their white coats, who are former royalist troops of the front uh, of the front line of the army. And then the citizen volunteers with their blue, white, and red coats in reserve. So again, with the patriotic motifs. Um, this is really interesting. The the French cannon system. So. This is going to prove very decisive, not only in this battle, but in the whole Napoleonic campaign. The French 12-pounder heavy cannons, they were basically the best of the age. The principle of fighting with cannons and, and cannonballs is that you have the cannonball bounce about five times through the lines, and it eviscerates columns of infantry. And when it hits someone, basically that person explodes, right? And this person is probably wearing... Uh, various kinds of materials as well. Maybe they have um, some wood on them in the form of a, a rifle or in previous ages a shield. Um, they're full of bones and whatever. So when that person explodes, they basically become shrapnel and take out people near them too. Then it bounces and repeats it and repeats it. So it's not like it's not like what often people think of traditionally as a cannonball is it hits somewhere and explodes or something and it kills like one or two guys. Like it's a way of destroying whole armies. Which is sometimes if you see in movies set in those periods, the cannonballs hit the ground and explode. Yeah. Everybody goes flying. Yeah. (laughs) It's very Hollywood, very John Woo, the way that they show it of people like giant flaming explosions (laughs) and people, yeah, like going like 12 feet in the air. It's, it's quite, it's, it's very unrealistic compared to how, cannons actually worked um the french cannons in particular they were relatively light for the period and what what light means is that they can be maneuvered easily which is so important in a battle um equally important the french cannons could adjust the angle of fire which is a a novel um means of improving accuracy for the period so napoleon who started his military career in the artillery corps he would use these cannons to his great advantage he would later call them his um, his beautiful daughters, you know, basically, <laughs> his agents of chaos. Beautiful, beautiful daughters. <laughs> the most beautiful daughters, cannons we've ever seen. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, so the French they they called this um, they called this cannon system the uh, Griboval system. So what made their system? What made the French system so special? So cannons of the period. They were made by casting a mold. That's how you made a cannon. So you basically you had your mold and you would you would put molten metal in it and that's how you would make your cannon. But the problem is this is that the cannon then takes on any imperfections caused by the shape of the mold. So if your mold isn't exactly perfect, which no mold ever is, then you're gonna have imperfections in your cannon. So how do you compensate for that? You make your cannons thick, and that's what stops any imperfection from cracking and then exploding because of the imperfection. Um, The French solved this problem by machining the bore from a solid block of metal instead. So because the barrel was uh, more perfect and more solid, the cannons could be smaller. Um, The machining also allowed the barrels to be shorter because the the barrel could be bored to a tighter, more precise fit between the cannonballs and the cannon barrel. A tighter fit allowed more energy from the powder to be transferred to the ball instead of escaping out the muzzle. The cannons could therefore be shorter since they had enough energy with the tighter fit. Shorter, smaller cannons were more lightweight and therefore more maneuverable on the battlefield. 
The French tested these designs with the American revolutionaries and then kept the system secret from both foreigners, and this is interesting, from royalist officers in the French army. They didn't even, even before the revolution, they didn't trust the royalist officers not to divulge these secrets to the enemy, which is very sad. Which is some good foresight, but also probably those officers were so stuck up, they would have been like, oh yes, (laughs) play along with your fancy toys. (laughs) That is an excellent point, yeah. The like supposition that officers of leisure, men of leisure, would even give a shit about (laughs) the... (laughs) <laughs> what a smaller cannon. Yeah. <laughs> Outrageous. Gallops <laughs> <Yeah>. away. <laughs> uh, what bigger cannons? The biggest cannons yeah. you can make. Um so and and you know what's crazy that even though these were like the smallest the smaller cannons of the age and smaller than the predecessor, each cannon that that was involved in the Battle of Almy, it took fifteen men to operate the That's cannon. It took six horses to maneuver the cannon. And it could only fire one round a minute. So these are still huge. Yeah, they're these still huge. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's madness. Yeah. I mean, these things are like these things are amazing, amazing pieces of engineering and of um, just the training that it would take to have fifteen men completely yeah. in sync just to be able to make it fire one round a minute. Yeah. And still, at that point, it would be devastating to yeah. the enemy. Um, all right, so now let's get on to the, the action. The battle begins at dawn. You get different figures about how many men were involved in the battle itself, usually in the thirty to 40,000 range on each side. The early morning fog, um, in the early morning fog, fog, the French and Prussian vanguards bump into each other in a minor engagement. On Kellerman's left flank, French troops under uh, General uh, Chasseau try to dislodge the Prussian HQ uh, on La Lune, but they're repulsed. At 7 in the morning, Kellerman figures out what the Prussians are doing. The Prussians try to advance down the road, but are met with French cannon fire through the morning fog. They decide not to press their luck. The fog gives both sides a chance to prepare for the coming battle. The French for defense, and the Prussians for attack. At 10 in the morning, with the uh, the sun finally lifting the fog, the Prussians open up with their 58 cannons. You have to imagine what kind of noise, what kind of opening noise a salvo like that would be, like 58 cannons <laughs> firing in quick succession. Uh, it w- I'm sure I, I can't imagine any of those guys kept their hearing for very long. And they've still got the big boy cannons, too. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, that are overloaded <laughs> with powder <laughs> just to make it fire the same distance. Yeah. yeah. So I just like this massive bombardment. And um, the French, they return fire just to show that they're ready for a fight. And they also uh, begin singing the revolutionary song, Sa Ira, which is a song about an armed citizenry never giving up, never surrendering. And most importantly, they changed many of the choruses to be about hanging royalists from lampposts. So this is their, like, version of the glorious day of the rope, basically, where they could go out and take their revenge. Um, the two sides spend the morning lobbing cannon volleys across two kilometers of valley. So they basically don't inflict any damage on each other because they're so far apart on their respective hills. Um, and because it had been raining so much, the, the, we were talking earlier about how the cannonballs would bounce. They're not bouncing now because the ground's so soggy, they just go right into it. <laughs> so... 
at this point, it's like it's all for show. It's a contest of will. Who's going to give up first? That's what they're trying to do. So the Prussians, they decide we're done with this. We're gonna we're gonna advance. We're advanced. We're you know we're disciplined veterans of warfare. We can do this. So they initiate a, a complicated oblique order. So an oblique order. What is that? The point of an oblique order is to concentrate your forces on one flank, overwhelm that flank, and then break the enemy's line by crashing into them from the side. So the Prussians would mass their infantry on their left flank while they're holding the rest of the French line with their right flank and reserve cavalry. Kellerman um, also assembles an attack column because he thinks the Prussians were engaging in a limited engagement in the valley. He hopes that he can just ride down, capture some Prussian artillery, and then, he, uh, you know, he rides. So what he does basically is he rides out to his right flank personally um, with his um, armored horsemen. They basically, they, these guys are like super traditional. They got these like, like Roman style, like metal breastplates, basically. Yeah. So he rides out with those guys. They still think they're fighting the Battle of Kenai. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, maybe not Balakne if they're Romans, but uh, they're fighting something. Yeah. They're, still, they're still in Gaul. <laughs> yeah, it really harkens back to like an old style of, of warfare. Um, so uh, the French infantry and cavalry who are at this vanguard, they head out to engage the Prussians thinking, oh, they're just like trying to scare us. But what happens is that they come across a hidden battery of Prussian artillery. So they are just like completely beaten back in disarray they just open total fire with this artillery they destroy this vanguard um they have they have no choice but to retreat even kellerman his uh his horse is shot out from under him and he's only saved because his men go and they uh they drag him to safety um most of these advanced cavalry these french cavalry are either killed or wounded in the cannon fire now spotting this weakness the prussians prepare to advance they send in their grenade, uh, grenadiers. Um, what are grenadiers? They're basically the assault troops of the time, the storm troops, if you will. Um, they're the biggest, they're the strongest, they're the most aggro of the Prussian forces. Um, but Kellerman, he, he's, back, he's back to his line. He places a battery on, the si- on their side of the field where, where the grenadiers are coming up, and he returns fire with his cannons, and he stabilizes that right flank. That they choose not to engage, which was smart because they would have been blown to pieces. Um, a young general of the cadet branch of the um, Bourbon royal dynasty, Louis Philippe, he would later go on to become the king of France. He leads this response to the Prussian advance with sustained cannon fire. So this future king of France in a reestablished monarchy is... He saves the revolution at the same time. Really interesting story. Um, So, how old would he have been at that point? I think he's in his teens. teens. Yeah, I think he's like sixteen or seventeen, something like that. Um, So, seeing all this going on, some of the French soldiers they begin to lose their courage a bit, and they start just like slowly backing away, retreating. Um, But you know, this is really inspiring is that the officers, you know, they're used to officers who are, um, you know, not exactly the most upstanding or nicest to them, but, um, you know, and who, who would typically order them to their deaths. Um, they are the ones leading the charge to the front. And so this stops the, the route. It's the rank and file see that the officers go to the front 
And so they go to join. Even Kellerman, he gets off his horse, he goes on foot, he goes in the front line uh, with his men. Um, so the Prussians advance two of their three columns with flanking cavalry towards the uh, HQ centered around the windmill. Kellerman positions his troops for battle and places the reserve alt artillery to cut up their lines. He arranges his men into columns, and this is the line that he tells them. He says, Comrades, here is the moment of victory. We will let the enemy advance without firing a single volley, and then we will charge them with our bayonets. So they are, they mean business. They're going to do this as uh, if, the, if the Prussians mean to fight, they're going to have to fight a melee combat yeah. with these incredibly um, incredibly inspired troops. So the Prussians advance. They basically do a feint to see if the French will break. But the French hold their ground. As the Prussians enter into the killing field, Kellerman raises his hat on his saber and he cries, Vive la nation! Just long live the nation. His army breaks into thunderous cheer, and the cannons open fire on the advancing Prussians. The men echo their general, and they also cry out, Vive la nation, over and over and over again. The battalions, each battalion, shouting war cries for their general, echoing down into the valley at the advancing Prussians. The morale held. The Prussians had hoped to scare the rebels into fleeing, but it didn't work. The Prussians foresee unacceptable casualties at this point, realizing they would have to engage in brutal hand-to-hand -hand combat after advancing through cannon fire of some of the best artillerymen in the world. The Prussians thought better of an attack. They lingered in the valley for a bit and then began an orderly retreat back up their own hill. The Black Duke halts the advance and returns to artillery volleys. Completely ineffective artillery volleys. <laughs> sinking in the mud. Yeah, exactly. Uh, so... The Kaiser, he's not having this. He's the one who was pressing for this invasion. It's really, you know, gone to shit. It's, it's not what he envisioned. He thought he would be in Paris by now talking with, with uh, King Louis. Um, so he's, he's, he, he says to the Black Duke, he's like, we got to get back to the front. What are you doing? Why did you retreat your men? Um, so he, he personally orders the troops back to the front. But as the men advance, they're again just picked off by the French artillery. So, and the Prussians, you know, they can't really shoot up the hill. You know, the French shoot down the hill with this artillery pretty easy, but these Prussians with their outdated cannons that can't even adjust the angle, they're not able to return in kind. Um, but the Prussians do get a bit of luck. At about 1 p.m. in the afternoon, a Prussian cannonball hits a French ammo wagon for the artillery. And this causes a massive explosion. It's it, the one percent shot you need to make. It <laughs> is that is exactly it. Like it is like uh, on Pearl Harbor yeah. when they managed to hit the uh, was it the magazine uh, battery in the uh, USS Arizona that just like blew oh, it in half. Little, yeah. yeah, it's like that. Like it kills hundreds of French troops. Yeah. It's crazy. Not only does it kill hundreds of French troops, but it also causes chaos and, and for people who are already on edge um this is you know like a lot of them start to run away um but uh, kellerman he runs right into the the flaming fiery chaos and he, he rallies everyone together and he stops them from retreating once again so once again kellerman's just like leading from the front keeping everyone together being a really good general 
So the Prussians take advantage of this. They advance a second time with the expectation that after this chaos caused by this big explosion, the French would finally flee. But even though the Prussians get near to the French line, the French hold their ground. The Prussians once again begin to take casualties. The Black Duke once again calls off the attack before his forces suffer the full onslaught of the French artillery. The Black Duke had ultimately been misled by the French nobles, who assured him that all these peasants would flee at the first volley of cannon fire. But the elite French artillery kept the Prussians at bay and never wavered in their commitment. All in all, the French had fired 20,000 cannonballs at the enemy. That's crazy. <laughs> yeah, imagine, and that's yeah. that means 20,000, at least 20,000 minutes, too. Yeah, right? 20,000 minutes. <laughs> um, so for four hours after this, after the second attempt, the two sides, they continue to exchange cannon fire with, without engaging infantry lines against one another. The Prussians try to advance one final time at four o'clock, but are beaten back again uh, with neither force giving in and a literal storm brewing. The two sides disengage. The rain continues throughout the late afternoon. So at this point, it's impossible to fight because with the rain, you can't fight with muskets. You know, the the gunpowder is all wet. You literally can't engage in combat. Um, and so Kellerman, he yells out to his troops, uh, victory is ours. And everyone breaks into tears and applause. And the Prussians, they just, they retreat. By, f- by six o'clock, they're off out of the battlefield. So going back to uh, Goethe's, um, you know, I mentioned earlier, uh, jokingly, that Goethe was, uh, you know, an aristocrat who wanted to experience things for himself. Uh, I found this great little entry from his uh, journal of this expedition. Um, it's it's kind of in an old-timey English tra- uh, translation, so please pardon that, the way it's written, but it's, it's so good I couldn't not include this. So um, he says, I had heard so much of the cannon fever that I wanted to know what kind of thing it was. Ennui and a spirit which every kind of danger excites to daring, nay, even to rashness, induced me to ride up quite coolly to the outwork of La Lune. This was again occupied by our people, but it presented the wildest aspect. The roofs were shot to pieces, the corn shocks scattered about, the bodies of men mortally wounded stretched upon them here and there, and occasionally a spent cannonball fell and rattled among the ruins of the tile roofs. Quite alone, and left to myself, I rode away on the heights to the left, and could plainly survey the favorable position of the French. They were standing in the form of a semicircle, in the greatest quiet and security, Kellerman, then on the left wing, uh, being the easiest to reach. I fell in with good company on the way, officers of my acquaintance, belonging to the general staff in the regiment, greatly surprised to find me here. They wanted to take me back again with them, but I spoke to them of particular objects I had in view and they left me, without further dissuasion, to my well-known singular caprice. I had now arrived quite in the region where the balls were playing across me. The sound of them is curious enough, as if it were composed of the humming of tops, the gurgling of water, the whistling of birds. They were less dangerous by reason of the wetness of the ground. Wherever one fell, it struck fast, and thus my foolish experimental ride was secured against the danger, at least, of the balls rebounding. In the midst of these circumstances, I was soon able to remark that something unusual was taking place within me. I paid close attention to it, and still the sensation can be described only by similitude. 
It appeared as if you were in some extremely hot place, at the same time quite penetrated by the heat of it, so that you feel yourself, as it were, quite one with the element in which you are. The eyes lose nothing of their strength or clearness. It is uh, as if the world had a kind of brown-red tint, which, which makes the situation, as well as the surrounding objects, more impressive. I was unable to perceive any agitation of the blood, but everything seemed rather to be swallowed up in the glow of which I speak. From this, then, it is clear in what sense this condition can be called a fever. It is remarkable, however, that the horrible, uneasy feeling arising from it is produced in us solely through the ears. For the cannon thunder, the howling and crashing of balls through the air, is the real cause of these sensations. After I had ridden back and was in perfect security, I remarked with surprise that the glow was completely extinguished and not the slightest feverish ag agitation was left behind. On the whole, this condition is one of the least desirable, as indeed among my dear and noble comrades, I found scarcely one who expressed a real passionate desire to try it. So, that's his account of checking out the front lines. <laughs> Cannon contact high. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Whizzing of cannons. That's that's the part that really sticks with me, just the... Now, and he's talking about being close to the close to the batteries firing and that immediate impact. So he's probably breathing in. Yeah. Kind of like the the shell shock almost. Yeah, he can see the French lines. Yeah. He can he's close enough to hear cannonballs falling around him. Yeah. Um yeah, definitely while not engaged in battle, getting a, a good idea of it. Um he then so this is his his, his recount of the experience, but he, Later, he decides that he's going to well, go around, just kind of see what the Prussians are up to, how they're dealing with all this. So um, while they're all sitting around the campfires, uh, Goethe realized the impact this defeat had on them. He tells us that most of them were silent, and in fact, the power of reflection and judgment was wanting to all. At last I was called upon to say what I thought of the engagement, for I had been in the habit of enlivening and amusing the troops with short sayings. <laughs> it's just a guy who just like <laughs> constantly saying yeah. aphorisms. Yeah. Oh, the troops were amused. Yeah. Just uh, yeah. Uh, oh, God, gets back here. He's <laughs> trying to enjoy the campfire. Yeah. Um, he hears one cannon shot go, go, go off. Yeah. He's just like writhing on the ground. Yeah. <laughs> he really comes off as a dandy. Oh he really does. Yeah. You can see how he becomes like one of the most important poet in the world. Cause, yeah. Oh man. He just, he has a way with words. Um, and he said, um, so his, 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 uh, pithy saying that he's going to say for this. Um, and so this time he said, from this place and from this day forth commences a new era in the world's history, and you can all say that you were present at its birth, which actually I think is true. Oh, yeah, I think that was sure. very, yeah. um, for something that seemed just like a typical battle of the time, I think he definitely could see that it was not the case. Um, so here's the aftermath. So each side suffered a couple hundred dead. The Prussians died mainly from their second advance and the French from the ammo wagon explosion. When the Prussians leave the battlefield, they march for the heights of Dampierre to seize the French ammo depot there and be well placed for round two of the Battle of Valmy. But Kellerman marches his troops through the night 
after all this, after like fighting this crazy battle, right? And uh, he, he marches them through the night and he seizes the initiative. The French control the heights and they open fire from this position that the Prussians were hoping to take. He opens fire on them. <laughs> so that's an, a horrible surprise that they encounter. So in Kellerman's, he's just not messing around anymore. He wants to push them out of the country. He's tired of the, their occupation, but Dumoulier is a lot more cautious in this respect. So the two sides lingered around Valmy for a couple of weeks as a result of everyone's kind of cautiousness. Kellerman retreats back to a more secure position behind a river. He basically wants to cover his flanks. So the Prussians, you know, this is weeks later, they seize the heights and they dig in. Um, so it's like, yeah, you've taken the heights of Valmy, but it's weeks you know, it's going on weeks. You're no closer to your objectives. And the situation is getting really desperate because remember their supply lines have been cut off for now like a month. So they're running really low on food. Um, These heights, the heights of Almi, they're muddy. There's no running water. And so that means there's no sanitation. So they're back to getting really, really sick. Um, Meanwhile, volunteer armies are being raised all around the Champagne region to their, to their west. So the Prussians at this point are going to be surrounded on all sides by the French. Um, so now we enter into basically the boring negotiations phase. Um, Dumoulier hoped to break up the invasion force by negotiating with the Prussian Kaiser uh, about the, the, just the Prussian force, basically. But uh, the Kaiser, he said that a prerequisite for negotiations would be a restoration of the monarchy. So this is how... <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's just like they're so delusional. Like they've ha- like the royal, the royal, the royal families of Europe have had it so good for so long oh God, yeah. that just, the, yeah. the entitlement that they feel yeah. is 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 legendary, as you can see. But I mean, like it's not going to happen, right? It's a republic. They've decla- it's been a republic now for for like a couple months. Um, and so, and then on Dumoulier's side, he said, "Well, I'm not negotiating with you until all your forces are out of the country." So they're both kind of at a standstill yeah. at this point. Yeah. Um, they go back and forth, but then the Prussians, they just, th- they've had enough of this. Like, like they, 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 they had their chance. They, at the time they had like twice as many men. They had total control of the road to Paris. Um, you know, they didn't engage the majority of their forces, but, but nothing changed. Right. So they decided to turn back East 10 days later on September 30th. Prussians, they vacate the Valmy Heights on on October 1st, and they make it back to the border by October 29th. So it takes them like a month to get back to the border. It took two years to plan. Yeah. I mean, these are like crazy times that we're dealing with, right? Because you're moving tens of thousands of men. Um, You can see how they would have given up because it's, I mean, like those strategic opportunities don't come around too often. Yeah. Mobilizations are long and grueling. The possibility to annihilate a force is almost non-existent with the armaments of the time. Yeah, it's just yeah, it's 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 fascinating how it's you just think yeah you have those opportunities you miss them and you're gone. <laughs> yeah, they rolled the dice and it it failed and now they're just like they're all like they're so sick and like they have no food and like they're just like they're just like limping back to the border basically. Listening to Gatte continuously. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> insufferable. That was what broke the camel's back. Yeah, <laughs> I bet he didn't take any rations. I bet he was oh, fine yeah. having as much food as he wants, exactly. enlivening the troops <laughs> with sayings. <laughs> um, so you know Dumoulier, he's fine with this retreat. Like he doesn't resist it. He just lets it happen, even though he they could strike. Like the Prussians are really suffering, but they just don't want to take any chances, and they just let them 
work their way back. And so, uh, and, and likewise, the Prussians don't bother to resist at Verdun or Longwy. They just, um, they just let them flip over back to French control. So what does France do now? Well, now that Prussia's out of the picture, Dumouillet can finally pursue his initial goal, which was to invade Belgium, right? So, and Belgium at this time is, is controlled by the Austrians, the Austro-Hungarian Empire, right? So, um, you know, he, he reassembles his forces. Um, how can he be sure the Prussians won't intervene again? Well, what's going on at this time is that the Prussians are looking east, they're no longer they don't no longer care about France. They're the, Poland has just been invaded, and they want their share of Poland. They're gonna and, and, and Poland was always a big, almost a bigger concern for a long time for those powers too, or as much of a concern. Yeah, uh, just that that whole Eastern Front. I think that the and the French. I, I know eventually would try to form some type of alliance with the Poles that would not work out entirely. But it was just yeah, like the, the Prussians were so concerned about. Poland that it did take some heat off of of France maybe to give them those extra seconds or extra moments they needed to breathe almost absolutely like you think of the pr- the Prussian heartland and it is right next to Poland oh, whereas yeah. like yeah. Prussia from Paris to Prussia yeah. that's a long distance and there's a river there's the forest yeah you mentioned, like the terrain you can kind of say okay you can check that off yeah but I mean yeah you go east of Berlin it's just, yeah, open fields. yeah like old Prussia is now Poland. Yeah. yeah exactly. <laughs> <laughs> um, so the yeah the the Russians are eating up Eastern Poland, um, and the the Austrians even at the same time they're coalition partners they're eating up like part of like Western Poland. So if they don't get there quickly, they're gonna have nothing <laughs> left to take, right? So and, on that sweet Polish pie. Yeah, exactly. So. Um, and and then like you also got to realize that once Poland's eaten up by Russia, that means you have Russia as a neighbor, and your forces might need to be out there to deal with them too, right? Um, so f- fuck dealing with France, which is just like a crazy new monster of a revolutionary yeah. country, right? So the, that guy who had initially managed to get them through the forest, the Austrian general Clefite, um, he takes over from the Black Duke to basically harass revolutionary France with what remains the invasion force but it doesn't last long without the Prussians the Austrians are are no match for revolutionary France (laughs) so Dumoulier he goes with his initial plan of national liberation Um, he he just smashes into Austrian Netherlands which is basically Belgium too and uh, they occupy it for a few months but it's kind of like it's kind of like this sad little victory because the Belgians are super like conservatively minded and so they kind of want a monarchy they're not really interested in this revolutionary upheaval so basically like a, like a little while afterwards belgium decides just to go back to monarchy yeah. um but it sets a standard right so what we're seeing at this point is that you had like 1400 years of monarchies in europe and now you have the glorious militaristic republic that used to be the norm in Europe reestablished and it's marching around. It's doing what it wants to do with citizen soldiers. So after the battle and the declaration of the Republic, th- the King was stripped of his honors and made a regular citizen. Some revolutionaries argued for his execution. Others argued that he should remain a hostage to secure the Republic. Regardless, the revolutionaries accepted that he should be given a fair trial. 
and the discovery of hidden documents in his palace that proved his collusion with foreigners sealed his fate in that trial. Uh, the consequences. The victory was a massive boost to morale for the revolutionaries. An inexperienced people's army just stood its ground against the most professional army in Europe. The French Revolution is now legitimized. The victory gave courage to the assembly and the people of France that the Republic could resist even the strongest of foreign invaders. The victory was key to ensuring the continuation of the revolution. Plenty of French citizens would have accepted the French king's return over the uncertainty of revolution. Many even wrote to the king expressing their support for the monarchy. An armed royalist support be base began organizing in the northwest of the country, especially in Brittany, which is only recently transforming from a Celtic region into a French province, so it had less links to Paris and central France. The massacres committed by the revolutionaries after the Prussian king's declaration, combined with the fact that the revolution was a new, strange phenomenon, caused some French people to waver on support for the revolution. But on the flip side, even some noblemen were in the army at Valmy. As previously mentioned, the future king of France, uh, King Louis-Philippe, um, when the mo French monarchy is restored after Napoleon, was on the front lines with Kellerman. Uh, after the battle, Louis-Philippe returned to Paris to explain to the revolutionary government how the battle had unfolded. He would later flee France when the terror started ramping up at the young age of 19. So yeah, at the battle he was like 18, 17, something like that. He fled to Austria with his general, General Dumouriez, who also had to flee because he had tried to rally his troops to restore the 1791 constitution. The, this is great. The future king was in exile for 21 years and only became king 15 years after that in 1830. Um, his father, the Duke of Orléans, had also supported the French Revolution, but he did not manage to escape the terror. <laughs> he was executed. <laughs> um, so what's the big takeaway in terms of warfare i think it's that we've mentioned it a little bit but just to kind of break it down this is a new kind of warfare france was led by a meritocracy of revolutionary officers and this set the stage for napoleon to rise to power and dominate the continent the world of war was beginning to change from the limited engagement of a gentleman's army to total warfare the goal of 18th century warfare was to strategically best your opponent not to destroy him, kind of like you mentioned, like the impossibility of destroying an entire force with the weapons at the time. Yeah. You would outmaneuver him, and he would either retreat or surrender. The French decided to buck these informal rules. There was even an expression for this kind of combat, the guerre en dentelle, or straight lace warfare. Basically, troops moved slowly and needed to assemble into columns to advance. This took time. There was no place for surprise attacks. So an opponent could easily disengage if they wanted to. The two sides would do this dance until one army outmaneuvered the other. Then the various dynastic representatives would negotiate terms. No one would risk battle and total defeat unless both sides thought they had a real chance of winning. Generals were master strategists and the best generals would rarely or never have to attack with full force. You also have to keep in mind that the wars were over noble claims to lands and titles. There's no ideological battles between the armies that would necessitate total warfare and the complete destruction of your army. And this is basically how it's been since the Westphalia system was established after the Thirty Years' War, right? Which yeah. was the religious war. Once they were no longer religious wars, once it was based on nation states, it was, um, you know, it was fighting between interests. But we're entering into an age now where it's going to be ideological. So... At the time, we're talking about an investment by noblemen into an expensive officer corps using expensive equipment, these giant cannons that we're talking about, and, you know, in other words, a resource not to be squandered lightly. 
Um, basically, war was a chess match between professionals to manage the disputed claims between royal families. But the French were breaking the strategic rules of the game. Um, they were not only the strategic rules, but also the tactical rules. So at Valmy, the Prussians attempted to break the stalemate caused by the artillery duel by advancing their line infantry. But each time the Prussians tried to advance, they were harassed by French um, skirmishers. These random attacks caused the line to pause to avoid excessive casualties. This was a new development in warfare and would be critically important in the coming Napoleonic Wars. Skirmishers offered more flexibility to armies. The skirmishers could attack ahead of the line and take advantage of any mistakes made by the enemy, as well as harassing him at all times and wrecking his morale. All sides eventually began using skirmishers and also began training them. The ability to operate independent of the main columns required the self-discipline and skill of an elite unit. So the French developed the chasseurs and the elite voltigeurs, and the Prussians had the Jaegers and so on across Europe. So here are my th final thoughts on Valmy. So going back to uh, Goethe, he, <laughs> you know, <laughs> going back to him being a dandy, he wrote parts of his famous retelling of the story of Faust on the way to the battlefield. And Faust is the story of a man who is misled by the devil away from God and who finds redemption in the end. Um, so I'm not quite sure. Maybe France is like Faust and it was misled by a corrupt oligarchy and it's finding redemption now at Valmy through revolutionary rule. Or maybe it was a prediction of the excesses of the revolution that were yet to come. It's hard to tell because you have dark periods before in France and you have yeah. dark periods after. But what would be the the final verdict? So going back to his line when he's around the campfire, annoying his fellow countrymen, uh, he says, you know, we've entered into a new epoch and you can boast that you're a president at its birth. But he follows this line up with, it's as if nothing really happened. And I think that, that pretty well sums it up. It's both monumental, but nothing really happened. It was a few hundred dead, limited engagement, but it changed everything. Um, and now we have th the stage set for decades and decades of warfare. Um, people in the Anglosphere, which I, I imagine will be a lot of the people that we're reaching through this podcast, we tend to consider the Brits as either the good guys or at least not the bad guys for sentimental reasons and thanks to British resilience during the Second World War. There's a certain sentimentality there. But as a rule, the British Empire was very cunning and it was very cruel and most of all, it was a supporter of royal hierarchy. Great Britain was a peripheral opponent to the early revolutionary government, landing and uh, sieging Toulon in 1793 and ferrying French royalists to the west coast of France in 1795 using the British Navy. But both these attempts failed. But as you previously mentioned, you know, you're, we're going to have more coalitions to come. Yeah. This coalition of Britain, the Holy Roman Empire, the Netherlands, Portugal, and Spain, and other smaller powers, along with the initial invasion by Prussians, was eventually called the War of the First Coalition. But Britain would go on to bankroll the next six coalitions <laughs> against revolutionary and Napoleonic France. They were basically the bankers of royalist rule and ideology in the world. Um, personally, I also think that the anthems of the respective people fighting at Valmy kind of sums up the 19th century. The troops at Valmy sang La Marseillaise, which is now the French Revolution. It's the famous revolutionary song that extols 
Republican values. And you compare that to the Prussian anthem, which is um, Hail to thee in the victor's wreath, which praises the Kaiser and urges individuals to sacrifice for him. <laughs> I'd say that pretty well sums that up. Um, and then just one, one last final thing. I just wanted to give Kellerman his due. Um, his final career notes. Um, so a little short addendum. He, um, he puts down the Royalist Rebellion um, in Lyon, and he survives multiple accusations, and, and he ends up being imprisoned for 13 months during the Reign of Terror, but fortunately he doesn't lose his head. Um, he then goes on to support Napoleon during the invasion of Italy, but he fails spectacularly at this position he doesn't he doesn't manage to recapture the glory of Valmy and uh, Napoleon he, he just doesn't want to work with Kellerman anymore so he goes to the directory and they they agreed that all the offensive units would be put under Napoleon and Kellerman would spend the rest of his military career leading reserve units so he works to reform the army and he becomes president of the Senate in 1801 and he's appointed the Marshal of France in 1804 by Napoleon he continued to support the army through recruitment and is given the title of the Duke of Valmy in 1808. He continued to help Napoleon's army with qualified reserves throughout his reign. But with Napoleon's crushing defeat in Russia, the 80-year-old marshal sides with the restored Bourbon monarchy and stayed loyal to the crown even during Napoleon's 100 days return to France. And as requested, when Kellerman died, his heart is buried inside the obelisk at the site of the Battle of Valmy, where he could finally rest in peace with his fallen comrades. So, yeah. <laughs> uh, so that is the Battle of Valmy. It's just when you were talking about the um, the the developments in warfare, it's interesting the role. I mean, there would have maybe been a scenario where in some alternate universe, the officer class, the aristocratic class is heavily invested in artillery and then you get this weird shift where the artillery deserts and maybe the the revolutionary armies don't have that extra punch. But it's interesting how you've, a bunch of peasant revolts that don't always get that extra level of firepower and here you get you get a nationalist peasant, up, well, not a peasant uprising, but like you said, peasant troops who are highly motivated but who get that extra kick, that these highly educated, skilled guys, mm -hmm. basically this like technocratic revolution from below. And I mean, I'm thinking I'll, I'll definitely talk about it too because it's something similar in the Russian Revolution with these really smart guys on Kronstadt as well too, who can operate these crazy battleships. But I mean, yeah, it's, it's just really interesting. It's these innovations in artillery, these moments where you know, almost losing this, getting that kind of, this kind of like gangrenous old aristocratic class that was almost parasiting, you know, like mm. in, in the case of the Prussians, they didn't have the innovations the French did. So these revolutionary impulses that just release these extra energies coupled with these timely technocratic or technological innovations, you know, and then you get, I mean, mm. you don't get these massive, like Vedmi, like you said, is not a massive battle, but you still get these decisive moments. Napoleon will definitely put that to use too. It's just unbelievable, like unbelievable artillery maneuvers that mm -hmm. nobody sees coming. Yeah, the force, the stars just align yeah, in this perfect right. way, yeah. and the revolutionaries manage to pull it off. And yeah, it's true. You, you you bring up the Russian Revolution, and what really did it for the Bolsheviks was that they managed to convince so many royalist um, soldiers to switch over to their side. And that they were basically the party of the army. And that made all the difference that they had.
they could couple that component with the proletariat yeah. and then it's just a winning combination the same thing kind of happened here at Valmy. yeah yeah for sure. <laughs> all right well that was great that was uh yeah thank you that was awesome <laughs> all right